Morning, everybody. If you'd like, turn over to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, we'll read a few verses out of this, pick up in verse 24. <coughs> Matthew 17, 24. And when they were come to Capernaum, that's Christ and his disciples, they that received tribute, a tax, tribute money, came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? You can detect a, a sense of arrogance and aggression in what they say. Doth not your master pay tribute? Verse 25, he saith, yes. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him. He spoke before Peter could speak, saying, what thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or strangers? Effectively saying, Peter, kings, Magistrates, people who have the authority to tax. Who do they tax? Do they tax their kids or do they tax the common folk? I think logically we can all work through that question, the common folk. Verse 26, Peter saith unto him of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, Go out of the sea and cast an hook and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. Now I'm going to give you the point, the main point of this passage of scripture up front, and then we'll work through it from there. But here is the point of everything we just read. Right now, if you are a believer, what is that? That is a sinner who stands in the hands of a holy and a sovereign God who demands perfection. And your only hope is that Jesus Christ has done everything, absolutely everything, to make you acceptable before God. You are looking to him for every aspect of salvation, even those aspects you might not even be familiar with. Everything in my salvation, where do I look? To Christ. That's a believer. I want to speak to believers here for a moment. If you are a believer, this is the point. You don't owe anybody anything. The children are free. You are debt-free. You don't owe anybody anything. Now that's the point of this passage of scripture. You say, that's great. How do we get there from here? We got to walk the path to get there. And the first thing I want to talk about is this tribute money, this tax. And this tax, these men come to Peter. They say, doth your master pay tribute? Is he going to pay this tax? And this was not a Roman tax and these were not Roman tax collectors. These men were Jews. And the tax they're trying to collect is what was called a poll tax or a temple tax seemingly taken up for the purposes of maintaining the temple, for the, the things of worship. And they said, doth your master pay tribute? 
And from what I read about these fellows, this is the way they were employed. This is what they were supposed to do. They would go out and they would bully and they would intimidate and they would trick people into trying to play, pay this tax, maybe guilt them a little bit along the way. It was all about coercion, all about bullying. That's how they were employed. And if you think about it, if you remember, the temple at this time is in complete and utter disarray. And the way it is and the way it's being operated is actually a, a perfect picture of false religion. What they had done is made worship more convenient, more palatable to the worshipers. They said, you know what, these people are bringing their sacrifices all the way from the lands they came from. Here's what we'll do. We'll go inside and we'll start selling lambs. We'll start selling doves. And we'll make a little money off this. We'll profit off of this. You guys don't have to bring it with you. We've made it more convenient. Just come the way you are. And that's man's religion. Watering down the message of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done and who he has done it for, for the sake of making it more palatable to the natural man. If you remember, you go up just a few chapters in Matthew 21, what did the Lord do? He goes in there and he makes a whip. He flips over the money changers' tables and he drives everybody else. He said, my house is called a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. And the point is this, these men, these tax collectors, they come with a bad motive and they're coming from a bad place. I thought this was interesting. It's a question I had to ask. Why did they go to Peter and not to Christ? They didn't look at Peter and say, are you going to pay the tax? They went to Peter and said, doth not your master pay tribute? They were inquiring as to whether Christ was going to pay this tax. He's right there in the house. Why wouldn't they just go talk to him? I think I know the answer. They were intimidated by him. I look back, I wanted to see the first time that the Lord had ever called the Pharisees a generation of vipers. It's just back there in Matthew 12, just a few chapters before. I have a strong suspicion these men were either there and witnessed that, or they at least heard about it. They said, our job is to bully, and our job is to intimidate, and our job is to guilt. And this one, this man, he's not going to be bullied. He's not going to be guilted. He's not going to be intimidated. So we'll go after the fishermen. We'll go after the softer target. Their job was to intimidate, but they were intimidated by him. And it goes back to a point that I think our pastor has been making as long as I've been attending here. And it's this. Who felt intimidated in the Lord's presence? Only one type of person. Self-righteous religious folks who thought they were better than everybody else. Thought they had something to bring to the table. Look at me. Look at what I've done except me because this. They always felt intimidated as they should have. But who didn't feel intimidated? This man receiveth sinners and eats with them. Sinners were always welcome. Always welcome. If you were a sinner, I'm not talking about a fake sinner. I'm talking if you were a sinner, a bad person, a wicked person. You come down and sit down next to him and have a meal, and you wouldn't fit, feel the least bit intimidated because this man receiveth sinners. That is the heart and soul of the gospel. I could almost stop right there. This man receives sinners. It's the best news a sinner ever heard. He receives sinners. He doesn't hold them off. He doesn't intimidate them. This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Real sinners. Not fake sinners. Real sinners. Now, where did they get the idea for this temple tax? This is a man-made institution. The Lord didn't bring this in. Where did they get this? I looked at that word tribute. You know what it means? It means half shekel. It actually speaks of an exact value. And so here's what they had done. They had actually molested and modified a concept, something that the Lord had instituted long ago in the Old Testament, 
for a particular time and a particular purpose. It was the atonement money. That was the exact value of the atonement money, the ransom money, one half shekel. They had taken the idea of the atonement money and said, we're going to change that. We're going to modify it. And through doing that, we'll go get a, a temple tax. We'll line our pockets with some of that tax money. We'll use this thing that the Lord instituted to serve our own wicked purposes. But there's a whole lot we could learn about the gospel through that atonement money. Turn over to Exodus chapter 30. I'd like you to see this. Exodus chapter 30, picked up in verse 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Exodus 30, 11, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord. When thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. This they shall give every one that passeth among them that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 giras. And half shekel shall be an offering of the Lord. Every one that passeth among them that are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering unto the Lord. Now listen to this. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half shekel when they give an offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. And thou shalt take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shalt appoint it for the service of the tabernacle and of the congregation that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. Now here's the sum and substance of everything we just read. Lord mandated anytime you take a census, anytime you number the people, you have to collect the atonement money. Take a census. You have everybody comes up. Every male, 20 years and older, he would come up. He would pass under a bar. They would write his name in a book, and he would carry with him a half shekel, the shekel of the sanctuary, and he would give that money. And if they didn't, if they didn't take the atonement money when they numbered the people, bad things happened. This is very serious business. You look over in 2 Samuel 24. David did this. He numbered the people, but he didn't take the atonement money. You know what happened? The Lord sent a pestilence that killed 70,000 people. This was serious business. There could be no numbering of the people. There could no, be no passing below the bar. There could be no writing the name in the book unless you had the half shekel, unless you had the atonement money. What's the point of all this? What does this teach? Scripture tells us, what are they going to do with the money? Yes, it was used for the upkeep of the temple and for the things of the temple, but it says very particularly in verse 16, this is a memorial it's to bring something to memory every single time you do it. Every single time you step up there and you pass onto the bar and your name is written in that book and next to your name there is no debt and there is no blot and there is no stain and you have a clean ledger and you are counted as a citizen of the kingdom and you give that atonement money, you remember the only reason your name is written in heaven and the only reason you have a clean ledger and you don't have any balance in the book. And you don't owe anybody anything. You are spotless and sinless. It's for one reason. It's because Christ made your full atonement. 
That was the point of this atonement money. I'm going to give you a, a few things to chew on here. I thought this was interesting. Number one, out of what we just read, who had to pay? Everybody had to pay. A patriarch could not pay for his sons. A rich man couldn't come up with a, a bag full of shekels and be like, hey, the next 60 guys behind me, I'm paying for them. No, you personally passed under the bar, you personally put your name in the book, and you personally had to present your half shekel. This atonement money was personal. You know what that's called? It's called particular redemption. And it shows how personal the death, the atoning death of Jesus Christ is for particular people. Why do we make such a big deal about that? Did Christ die for all men? No. That is not the teaching of this book. Jesus Christ laid down his life for who? For the sheep, otherwise known as the elect. Everybody the Father gave him before the world began in divine election, he came and he bore the sins of those particular people. And for those particular people, he took away all their stain. He paid all their debt to where they have a clean ledger in the book. This is particular redemption. Now, why do we make such a big deal about that? Why do we scream that from the rooftops? You can't preach a message without talking about this. Jesus Christ died for the elect. He accomplished salvation for his elect. Why do we make such a big deal about this? Because if universal redemption is true, that God wants to save everybody and Jesus Christ died to save everybody, but some men end up in hell anyways, it maligns the name of God. That means God can purpose something and it not come to pass. That means Jesus Christ can be a failure. I wanted to save him, but I just couldn't. It means God is unjust. That means he can punish my sins in Jesus Christ, and he can turn around and punish me as well. It maligns the name of God, and that's why we scream this thing of particular redemption from the rooftops, because it declares the greatness of God, that he chooses, he purposes, and everybody he purposed to save, they are saved because Christ is the successful Savior. He's the one who can't fail. And here's the other reason we scream it from the rooftops. If you're a believer, what other hope do you have? That is my hope. That is everything. My hope is this. Jesus Christ went to the cross bearing my sins. He put them away, and now my name is in that book, and it's clean, and there is no blot, and there is no stain. A clean leisure. I owe nothing. The children are free. That's my only hope. If you tell me that's not true, then you have robbed me of every speck of my hope. And this is the, a reoccurring theme in this message. It's just one thing. We got one thing. We got one hope. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is our salvation. Now, not only did everybody have to pay, everybody had to pay the exact same thing. The rich shall not pay more. The poor shall not pay less. Everybody had to present the half shekel. Why? Why did everybody have to pay the exact same thing? What is the value of a man? I like baseball nowadays. I like watching trade players, guys going open contract and stuff like that. They say, well, that guy's worth $30 million over 10 years. That guy's worth $2 million over five years. They have different values because they have different ability levels. This guy's better than that one, so he's worth more, right? What is the value of the natural man? Nothing. He has no merit before God. He is dead in trespasses and sins. He can't take the first step toward righteousness or coming up with one. His value is absolutely nothing. Therefore, to save a man, 
any man. The same price has to be paid every single time. The very death of the Lord Jesus Christ. If the Lord purposed to save just one man, the exact same thing had to happen. He had to bear that man's sins in his body and die that same death to save that one man. The same thing it took to save Abraham, to save Adam, to save Moses, to save David, to save me and you. It's all the same. It's all the same price because there's only one atonement for sin, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. That is salvation. I noticed this. It was a particular shekel. This is the shekel of the sanctuary. What does that mean? I read a little bit about that. They would keep the standard shekel in the tabernacle. It was minted in the tabernacle, a very particular shekel. Not any shekel would do. When you came up and you presented your half shekel, it had to match perfectly that shekel of the sanctuary, the one that was minted in the tabernacle. What does that tell us? The only thing God will accept is that which he provides. He's not going to accept anything from you and me. This is a familiar scripture. I'm going to read it to you. Isaiah 64, 6. Most of you can probably quote this. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we do all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. God's not going to accept anything from me and you. Your best work, he won't accept it. Your best thought, he won't accept it. Your sorrow over your sin, he will not accept it. None of that is acceptable to him. The only thing God will accept is that which he provides. That which came from the tabernacle goes out to the people and goes back to the tabernacle. And that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. You have to have just one thing. There's only one thing that God will accept. The atonement money, Christ and him crucified. That's salvation. And finally this. This is the only way you and I will be received. If I have this one thing, if I have Christ and him crucified, but it must be just that one thing. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less. If you have anything more than Christ and him crucified, you won't be received. What does that look like? I have Christ, but I've got some good works here too. I've got Christ. I've made some good decisions along the way. I've got Christ. I read my Bible quite a bit. I've got Christ. I let people cut in front of me in traffic. I've got Christ. And if it's Christ and, the rich shall not pay more. If you have Christ and, you won't get in. But the poor shall not pay less. What does that mean? How does that relate? These tax collectors went up to Peter and they said, Doth not your master pay tribute? Peter gave him a one-word answer. Yes. He didn't dilly-dally. He didn't explain it. Doth not your master pay tribute? Yes. My master pays all the tribute, every single bit of it. And this is a good question for a man to ask himself. Your master, your savior, your God, doth your master pay tribute? Does he pay all the tribute? Well, man says, well, my master, he paid part of the tribute. He paid a little bit, but, you know, now i got to come up with the other half. And my master, he paid 99% of the tribute. i got to do my 1%. You know, something's left for me to do. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less. If you have anything less than Christ and him crucified, if he didn't do it all, you won't get in. The only thing God will accept is that which comes from him 
Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's salvation. What's the logical question at this point? Do I have the shekel? And it's not a matter of can I obtain the shekel, where can I get it? That's not it. This is particular redemption. This is sovereign salvation. Either I have the shekel or I do not have the shekel. God will either accept me because of this shekel or I will not be saved. That's it. Do I have the shekel? It's a very simple question to ask. Do you need it? That's it. Do you need him to do everything in your salvation? I'm talking about lock, stock, and barrel. Whatever's involved, and that's a big word, a whole lot involved in that I'm not even aware of. Everything in my salvation, do you need him to do it all for you? That's all your only hope. My only hope is that whatever the Father demands of me, Jesus Christ already took care of it. If you need it, it's just this simple. You have it. You have that shekel. Now trust him. That's it. Can it be that simple? It's a big book. A lot of words in this pages. Are you telling me it means this? Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners. He did exactly what he came here to do. If you're a sinner, he put away your sin and he saved you. Now believe him. Is it that simple? Yeah. Folks, it is that simple. That is the simplicity of the gospel, the beauty of it right there. It's just that simple. Now what they do with that atonement money? I'll let you read about it. It's Exodus 38, 25 through 28, if you want to look it up later, but I'll tell you about it for right now. They gathered up all this atonement money, the children of Israel did, and it was to be used for the temple. And they melted it all down, this silver, these silver shekels, and it was used to make the sockets for the tabernacle. You know what the sockets were? So the tabernacle was a portable temple. And so what the children of Israel would do is the Lord would say, go over here. And they'd tear down the tabernacle, they'd pack it up, they'd move over there, and they'd rebuild it. And every time they moved, they didn't dig a new foundation every time they moved. These sockets, that was the foundation. The sockets that were built, the silver from the tabernacle. These big sockets that sat on the ground, and they'd lower the walls into these sockets. And that was the portable foundation for the tabernacle. You think of how big this structure was. A massive structure. You'd walk inside, the weight of all this, all the gold, all the wood, everything that was involved there... It was all supported and it was all held up by the silver from the atonement money. That was the foundation of the temple. Say, great history lesson. What's the point? The point is this. Salvation, like I've said, is a big word. And there's so much involved there. It involves God loving a people in Christ before the world began. It involves him choosing a people in Christ before the world began. It involves regeneration. God the Holy Spirit coming to a man and giving him life to where he can do what he could not do before. Believe the gospel. Repent of his dead works. Love Christ. Love his people. It involves so many things. Preservation eternally. But the whole thing is held up. The whole thing stems from it. all flows from the whole thing is supported by this. The atonement of Jesus Christ. His atoning death for his people. That is salvation. It's just one thing. And all of salvation is a beautiful thing. In every aspect, it's beautiful. Talk about it for days. But there's just one thing that holds the whole thing up. It's the atonement money. 
It's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is from that that every other aspect of salvation flows. Who is he? We talked about it in Sunday school. What's his name? He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Where did salvation begin? It began with an acceptable Savior for a particular people. That's where it began. And everything flows from there. This is an eternal redemption. God's people have always been safe and secure in Christ because he's always been the eternally slain lamb for them. Before we ever once committed one sin, there was already a propitiation for our sin. Jesus Christ, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, it all flows from him. And folks, this is the gospel. This is not just the centerpiece. This is it. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the gospel. This is the great accomplishment of Christ. This is his glory. This is the salvation of his people. It's the atonement money. It's Christ and him crucified. And this is a reoccurring theme throughout these scriptures. You can just walk through them and you see it over and over and over. The first death, Adam and Eve, Adam sinned against God. They fell. They saw their shame. They tried to hide their shame from God and they made some fig leaf aprons. And I find this very interesting. They did the best they could do. They made these coverings for themselves. So we're going to hide our shame from God. And you know what? They still hid when he came around. They knew what they did could not hide their shame from God. And he came to them. He said, that won't do. You can't stand before me with that. But I'll show you what we'll do. Right. And he took an animal, a lamb. This is the first death. These people never seen death before. We're used to it. You can't turn on TV without seeing somebody die. These people never seen death before. And violently, he killed a lamb in front of them. This is what it takes, Adam. This is what it takes. This is what I have to do to my only begotten son to undo what you have done. You see all this blood? You see all this violence? You see all this carnage? I got to do that to my only begotten son. This is what salvation looks like. It's not pretty. It's bloody. It's violent. A man had to die. And he skinned those animals and he took the coats of that sacrifice, that death, and he covered them. He said, now I can talk to you. Now you can stand before me. Because of this death. Cain and Abel. Cain comes up. He brings the fruit of the ground. He's a farmer. Brings the best he can come up with. Lord had not respect to Cain and his offering. Brought the best he could do. Lord had not respect. He will only accept that which comes from him. And Abel steps up. He offers what? I'm sure that Cain had many different things on that altar. Tomatoes, cucumbers, many different, a variety of different things. Abel had how many things? He had one thing. He had a slain lamb. That was it. Roast with fire. This is all I have before you. My only hope is that Jesus Christ died for me and he put away my sins and he made me acceptable before you. The Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering. Passover. The Lord says, I'm coming through Egypt. I'm going to kill all the firstborn in the Egyptian houses. But you, my people, here's what you're going to do. Take a lamb. All right, Lord, we have one. What do you want us to do with it? Watch it. Make sure it's spotless. It's blemishless. It has to be a spotless lamb. Okay, Lord, now what? What do you want us to do with it? Kill it. This is what it costs. This is what it takes. This is the mechanism of salvation. Kill it. 
catch its blood in the basin, take some hip, hyssop, put it over the doorpost, on the side post, and you get in the house, and here's the promise. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And he didn't inquire about the morality of those people inside those houses. And he didn't inquire about the strength of the faith of those people inside the houses. He didn't inquire about anything. He made a decree. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And then he honored his promise. And every time he saw the blood, he passed over that house. And not one who was in the house with the blood over the door perished that night. What was he looking for? One thing. One thing. The blood. The atonement money. Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's always one thing. We get an interesting illustration of that cross, that atonement, in our text here. Go back to Matthew chapter 17. This may be the strangest picture of the cross I've seen in the scripture yet, but it's there. Look at verse 27 of Matthew 17. This is what the Lord tells Peter to do. He says, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea and cast an hook. Now what I want you to notice there, he didn't say bait it. Don't put any bait on that hook. You cast a hook, a metal piercing bare hook and take up the fish that first cometh up the very first one and when thou hast opened his mouth thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for who for me and to thee now folks this is a picture of cross as much as anything else where was that fish it was down in the depths of the sea where did Christ go He went down to the depths. He became the sins of his people, and he went down to the depths, and in those depths he experienced God's wrath. Where was the atonement money? It was in the fish. Where is full atonement found? Full and complete atonement is found in one place. It's in somebody. It's in Christ. The hook, that piercing hook. Did the hook hook the fish, or did the fish bite the hook? The fish bit the hook, and there was no bait on that hook. The Lord Jesus Christ went in this thing with his eyes wide open. There was no trickery here. He voluntarily substituted himself for his people. He voluntarily laid down his life for his people. He knew exactly what he was going to experience. When the Father said, you have to go and you have to lay down your life for them, he knew exactly what that was going to be like. i got to bear their sins. I'm a holy man who has to be made the sins of his people, and I'm going to have to experience that. The wrath of God, this one who loves me, he's going to pour down all his wrath down upon me. He knew exactly what he was going to do, what it was going to cost. It was a bare hook. And what did he do? Because he loved his people and he would honor his father, he bit the hook. And then the Lord tells Peter, he says, you pull up the first one that comes up. You know what that implies? It means there's other fish going to come up too, but you take the first one because that's where the atonement's going to be. What's that money going to do? It's going to be enough for me and you. It's going to be enough for that fish, the first one you bring up, and for every other fish that comes up too. Christ being brought up from the dead, being brought from the depths, having secured full atonement for all his people, for himself and everybody he died for. 
Is that not the strangest picture of the cross you've ever seen? But that is everything in our salvation, isn't it? That's it. Now, what are the effects of his atonement for his people? Look at verse 25. He saith, yes. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? The kings, do they tax their kids or do they tax the common people? Of their own children or of strangers? Verse 26. Peter saith unto him, of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free. Now this is the effect of this full atonement being made by the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. The children are free. That means right now, if you're a believer, if you need this, you have it. If you're a believer, you're free. You don't owe anybody anything. You say, in what respect are you talking about here? Let me give you a few scriptures. This is Galatians 5.1. It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You've been free from the law. The Lord Jesus Christ kept the law, and when he did, you did as well. The law demanded that you be punished under the justice of God. You were punished in Christ. That means you are dead to the law. The law has been put away. The law, all it has to say about you now is this, he's honored me. In every way, shape, and form. There is an end to the law. Jesus Christ is the end of the law. The law has absolutely nothing to say to you. Don't go back to it. Don't be entangled again in that yoke of bondage. Does that come naturally to us? As long as we have this old man, it certainly does. When the children of Israel were traveling along the way, every time they get into a hardship, many times at least, you know what they start doing? They start talking fondly about Egypt. Well, at least in Egypt, we had the flesh pots. In Egypt, we had this, talking fondly about their days in bondage. Egypt? Egypt, where the taskmasters beat you? Egypt, where you made bricks without straw, you never could come up with the goods, and they just beat you and beat you, and you never could comply, you never could meet the output. Egypt, who nobody cared about you, your master didn't care about you, it was all about your output, what you could produce. Egypt, you think fondly of that? No, no. You've been freed from that law. The law had, this is, I wish I could believe this and say this the way I ought. We've kept the law. We've kept it in Christ, and that's real. The law has absolutely nothing to say to us. You're free from it. Don't go back to it. Don't go back to it. Enjoy that liberty. Turn to this one. This is Romans 8, verse 1. Romans 8, and pick from verse 1 there. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus 
hath made me free from the law of sin and death. How much condemnation is there for the believer? How much condemnation from God should we expect? There is therefore now no condemnation. Why can there be no condemnation? How can that possibly be possible before a just God? There's only one answer because there is no sin. There is therefore now no condemnation. Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, has put away your sin. If there's no condemnation, there is no sin. And you know what that opens the door for? The Holy Spirit comes and he gives you that spirit of life in Christ. Nothing prevents it. It's yours. It's been secured for you by Jesus Christ. Everything flows from the foundation. Everything flows from the atonement. Now the Spirit comes and he gives that spirit of life in Christ. And that new man in Christ, that holy man in Christ, what is his confession? I live because he lives. That's it. There's only one reason I stand before God and I live. I have this because he lives. Because he laid down his life, he did what his father gave him to do, and his father brought him back from the dead. I live because he lives. And that's the confession of every believer. And that is the evidence of this, that you have no sin. And that means there's not going to be any death. Now, we're all going to physically die. That's not what I'm talking about. You and I will never experience the wrath of God. I was thinking about this last night. I talk about that quite a bit, the wrath of God, hell, things like that. I have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. And you know what? In heaven, not one person there is going to have any idea what that's like. One man is going to know what it's like. Jesus Christ, because he experienced it. You and I, we're never going to experience it. Here's the next one. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9. I want you to see this one as well. I had never considered this one before. Paul said this. Look at verse 19. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. He said, For though I be free from all men. I had never considered that before. You're free. If you're a believer, you're free from all men. You know what that means? That means no one has the right to put you back under that law. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks of you. There is one person you have to be concerned with what they think, and that is your master. And if your master says that you are holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, that means you are holy and you are unblameable and you are unreprovable. That's the truth of the matter. And whatever anybody else says, it just doesn't matter. Nobody has any right to put you back under that law. But look what Paul did with this liberty. Complete liberty in Christ. What did he do with it? Go back to verse 19. For though I be free from all men, yet I have made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, 
that I may gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save to some. Paul had complete and utter liberty. He said, you're free. If you're a believer, you're free. Free from everything. You have complete and utter freedom. What did he use his freedom for? He said, I became whoever I had to be for this purpose. That I might have an audience with a man. That I might be able to preach the gospel to him. Around the Jews, I was a Jew. Around the Gentiles, I was a Gentile. If you were weak, I was weak. If you were strong, I was strong. I became whoever I had to be for this one opportunity that I might have an audience. That they might listen to me. That I might be able to tell them about my Savior and what he has done for sinners. That he might save some. He became a servant to all. That's what he did with his great liberty. You can do whatever you want, Paul. You're free. You're scot-free. There's absolutely no blot next to your name in the book. What are you going to do with that? I'm going to preach the gospel with every opportunity I have. I'm going to tell other sinners where I found bread. Now, how does a child of God, one who has this atonement, find out that he has it? Because this is a matter of either having it or not, right? We talked about that before. Our example in verse 27 tells us that as well. What the Lord told Peter to do was this. He said, you go out there, he goes, and you cast a bare hook into the sea. Don't bait it. Just a bare hook. When the Lord first found Peter, what was he doing? He's fishing. He said, you follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. How does a believer find out that he's one of God's? That he has this atonement money? Well, it's very simple. It's through the preaching of the gospel. We cast out that bare hook. No bait. There's that thing, absolutely nothing appealing about the gospel message to the people of this world. It is naturally offensive. We don't sugarcoat that at all. Nothing appealing about it. It's offensive. It offends men's sense of self-confidence, their pride, their sense of self-worth, their sense of self-righteousness, their sense of self-will, their free will. It offends all that. We throw that bare hook out there. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. He did exactly what he came here to do. If you're a sinner, he accomplished your salvation. Now trust him. That bear hook gets thrown out there, and the people of this world, I don't want anything to do with that. And you know what a sinner does every single time? He bites the hook. He bites the hook, and he is brought all the way up. Here's what I think is interesting, though, and I thought this was a, a very interesting point. The money was in the fish long before it ever bit the hook. What do I mean by that? Faith isn't the cause of salvation. Salvation is the cause of faith. What happens when a man believes the gospel? He finds out he's been saved. That's what he finds out. He finds out that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. For me, always has been. I was chosen of God before the world ever began. I've always had the love of God upon me. He's always been watching out over me. Long before I ever loved him, he loved me. Long before I ever knew him, he knew me. This whole time, and all that time prior to my conversion and post, when I'm warring against him, you know what he was doing? Lovingly and long-sufferingly guiding my footsteps 
bringing me to him. The entire time, he was after me, and I was running away from him. You don't find that out until the Lord reveals himself to you. But the truth of the matter is, you've always had that atonement. You've always had the work of Christ for you. I believed and I was saved. No, you were saved and you believed. <laughs> That's the way that works. I'll give you this last point. I'll quit. These men approached Peter and they say, Doth not your master pay tribute? And they're being kind of jerks about it, right? And I think this. What if the Lord would have come out of that house and said, Tribute. I am the tribute. I am the atonement money. Are you taking a temple tax for the maintenance of the temple? I am the temple. You can use this money to buy sacrifices. I am the sacrifice. Did he do any of that? He told Peter this. He said, Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, we're going to pay them. We're going to pay them this money. What do you take from that? What do I take from that? Well, I take this from that. If you're a child of God, you're free. The children are free. You don't owe anybody anything. Now, how am I to conduct myself as I walk through this world? In a manner that's not offensive. A manner that brings no shame upon my master and upon his gospel. Because this is what Paul said. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3. He said, We then as workers together with him beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain, giving no offense in anything, listen to this, that the ministry be not blamed. Paul's saying this. He goes, you go out there and you act in an offensive way and you act up. They're not going to blame you. They're going to blame your master. And you're going to blame his gospel. You see this man? This man says that he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He is relying on free grace works excluded. When you believe that, this is what it gets you. Every time, you're going to end up just like this, with this bad conduct, this poor attitude, and things like that. They're not going to come after you. They're not going to blame you. They're going to blame your master. How are we supposed to walk in this world in a way that is non-offensive? That we would bring no shame upon that one that has been so merciful and so gracious and so long-suffering with us. And the hope is this, when it's all said and done. Peter said this, And be ready also to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. It's never happened to me yet. But maybe one day, somebody walk up and say, Why? Why do you have so much hope? Why are you so optimistic? Why do you keep on saying everything's going to be just fine? Let me tell you about my master and how great he is. I suppose if you had to sum this up, it's real simple. Jesus Christ is everything in salvation. If all your hope is in him and what he's done, his shed blood, you're free. You don't owe anybody anything. I'll leave you there.